Section 136 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 136. The Sun. The two old friends were walking in the garden in bloom, where spring was bringing everything to life. One was a senator, the other a member of the French Academy, both serious men, full of very logical but solemn arguments, men of note and reputation. They talked first of politics, exchanging opinions, not on ideas but on men, personalities, in this regard taking the predominance over ability. Then they recalled some memories. Then they walked along in silence, enervated by the warmth of the air. A large bed of wallflowers breathed out a delicate sweetness. A mass of flowers of all species and color flung their fragrance to the breeze, while a cytosis, covered with yellow clusters, scattered its fine pollen abroad, a golden cloud with an odor of honey that bore its balmy seed across space, similar to the sachet powers of perfumers. The senator stopped, breathed in the cloud of floating pollen, looked at the fertile shrub, yellow as the sun, whose seed was floating in the air, and said, when one considers that these imperceptible fragrant atoms will create existences at a hundred leagues from here, will send a thrill through the fibers and sap of female trees and produce beings with roots, growing from a germ just as we do, mortal like ourselves, and who will be replaced by other beings of the same order, like ourselves again. And standing in front of the brilliant citizens, whose live pollen was shaken off by each breath of air, the senator added, Ah, old fellow, if you had to keep count of all your children, you would be mightily embarrassed. Here is one who generates freely, and then lets them go without a pang and troubles himself no more about them. We do the same, my friend, said the academician. Yes, I do not deny it. We let them go sometimes, resumed the senator, but we are aware that we do, and that constitutes our superiority. No, that is not what I mean, said the other, shaking his head. You see, my friend, that there is scarcely a man who has not some children that he does not know, children, father unknown, whom he has generated almost unconsciously, just as this tree reproduces. If we had to keep account of our amours, we should be just as embarrassed as the cytosis which you apostrophized would be in counting up in his descendants, would we not? From eighteen to forty years, in fact, counting in every chance cursory acquaintanceship, we may well say that we have been intimate with two or three hundred women. Well then, my friend, among this number, can you be sure that you have not had children by at least one of them, and that you have not in the streets or in the bagnio some blackguard of a son who steals from and murders decent people, i.e. ourselves? or else a daughter in some disreputable place, or, if she has the good fortune to be deserted by her mother, as cook in some family? Consider also that almost all those whom we call prostitutes have one or two children of whose paternal parentage they are ignorant, generated by chance at the price of ten or twenty francs. In every business there is profit and loss. These wildings constitute the loss in their profession. Who generated them? You, I, we all did, the men called gentlemen, they are the consequences of our jovial little dinners, of our gay evenings, of those hours when our comfortable physical being impels us to chance liaisons. Thieves, marauders, all these wretches, in fact, are our children, and that is better for us than if we were their children, for these scoundrels generate also. I have in my mind a very horrible story that I will relate to you. It has caused me incessant remorse, and further than that, a continual doubt, a quieting uncertainty, that at times torments me frightfully." When I was twenty-five, I undertook a walking tour through Brittany with one of my friends, now a member of the cabinet. After walking steadily for fifteen or twenty days, and visiting the Côte du Nord and part of Finisterre, we reached Douarnenez. From there we went without halting into the wild promontory of Raz by the bay of Les Trepas, and passed the night in a village whose name ends in of. The next morning a strange lassitude kept my friend in bed. I say bed from habit, for our couch consisted simply of two bundles of straw. 
It would never do to be ill in this place. So I made him get up, and we reached Endiern in about four or five o'clock in the evening. The following day, he felt a little better, and we set out again. But on the road, he was seized with intolerable pain, and we could scarcely get as far as Pont Lab. Here, at least, there was an inn. My friend went to bed, and the doctor, who had been sent far from Cumpe, announced that he had a high fever, without being able to determine its nature. Do you know Pont Lab? No? Well, then it is most Breton of all this Breton Brittany, which extends from the promontory of Raz to the Morbihan, of this land which contains the essence of the Breton manners, legends, and customs. Even today, the corner of the country has scarcely changed. I say even today, for now I go there every year, alas. An old chateau laves the walls of its towers in a great melancholy pond, melancholy and frequented by flights of wild birds. It has an outlet in a river on which boats can navigate as far as the town. In the narrow streets with their old-time houses, the men wear big hats, embroidered waistcoats, and four coats, one on top of the other. The inside one, as large as your hand, barely covering the shoulder blades, and the outside one coming to just above the seat of the trousers. The girls, tall, handsome, and fresh, have their bosoms crushed in a cloth bodice which makes an armor, compresses them, not allowing one even to guess at their robust and tortured neck. They also wear a strange headdress. On their temples, two bands embroidered in colors frame their face, enclosing the hair, which falls in a shower at the back of their heads, and is turned up and gathered on top of the head under a singular cap, often woven with gold or silver thread. The servant at our inn was eighteen at most, with very blue eyes, and pale blue with two tiny black pupils, short teeth close together, which she showed continually when she laughed, and which seemed strong enough to grind granite. She did not know a word of French, speaking only Breton, as did most of her companions. As my friend did not improve much, and although he had no definite malady, the doctor forbade him to continue his journey yet, ordering complete rest. I spent my days with him, and the little maid would come in incessantly, bringing either my dinner or some herb tea. I teased her a little, which seemed to amuse her, but we did not chat, of course, as we could not understand each other. But one night, after I had stayed quite late with my friend and was going back to my room, I passed the girl, who was going to her room. It was just opposite my open door, and, without reflection, more for fun than anything else, I abruptly seized her around the waist. Before she recovered from her astonishment, I had thrown her down and locked her in my room. She looked at me, amazed, excited, terrified, not daring to cry out for fear of a scandal and of probably being driven out, first by her employers, and then perhaps by her father. I did it as a joke at first. She defended herself bravely, and at the first chance she ran to the door, drew back the bolt, and fled. I scarcely saw her for a few days. She would not let me come near her. But when my friend was cured and we were to get out on our travels again, I saw her coming into my room about midnight the night before our departure, just after I had retired. She threw herself into my arms and embraced me passionately, giving me all the assurances of tenderness and despair that a woman can give when she does not know a word of our language. A week later I had forgotten this adventure, so common and frequent when one is traveling, the inn-servants being generally destined to amuse travelers in this way. I was thirty before I thought of it again, or returned to Pont Lab. But in 1876 I revisited it, by chance, along a trip to Brittany, which I made in order to look up some data for a book and to become permeated with the atmosphere of the different places. Nothing seemed changed. The chateau still laved its gray wall in the pond outside the little town. The inn was the same, though it had been repaired, renovated, and looked more modern. As I entered it, I was received by two young Breton girls of eighteen, fresh and pretty, bound up in their tight cloth bodices, with their silver caps with wide embroidered bands on their ears. It was about six o'clock in the evening. I sat down to dinner, and the host was assiduous in waiting on me himself. Fate, no doubt, impelled me to say, "'Did you know the former proprietors of this house? I spent about ten days here thirty years ago. I am talking old times.' 
Those were my parents, monsieur, he replied. Then I told him why we had stayed over at that time, how my comrade had been declared by illness. He did not let me finish. Oh, I recollect perfectly. I was about fifteen or sixteen. You slept in the room at the end, and your friend in the one I have taken for myself, overlooking the street. It was only then that the recollection of the little maid came vividly to my mind. I asked, Do you remember a pretty little servant who was then in your father's employ, and if my memory does not deceive me, had pretty eyes and fresh-looking teeth? Yes, monsieur, she died in childbirth some time after. And, pointing to the courtyard where a thin, lame man was stirring up the manure, he added, That is her son. I began to laugh. He is not handsome and does not look much like his mother. No doubt he looks like his father. That is very possible, replied the innkeeper, but we never knew whose child it was. She died without telling anyone, and no one here knew of her having a beau. Everyone was hugely astonished when they heard she was enceinte, and no one would believe it. A sort of unpleasant chill came over me, one of those painful surface wounds that affect us like the shadow of an impending sorrow, and I looked at the man in the yard. He had just drawn water for the horses and was carrying two buckets, limping as he walked with a painful effort of his shorter leg. His clothes were ragged, he was hideously dirty, with long yellow hair, so tangled that it looked like strands of rope falling down at either side of his face. He is not worth much, continued the innkeeper. We have kept him for charity's sake. Perhaps he would have turned out better if he had been brought up like other folks. But what could one do, monsieur? No father, no mother, no money. My parents took pity on him, but he was not their child, you understand. I said nothing. I slept in my old room, and all night long I thought of this frightful stableman, saying to myself, Supposing it is my own son? Could I have caused that girl's death and procreated this being? It was quite possible. I resolved to speak to this man and to find out the exact date of his birth. A variation of two months would set my doubts at rest. I sent for him the next day, but he could not speak French. He looked as if he could not understand anything, being absolutely ignorant of his age, which I had inquired of him through one of the maids. He stood before me like an idiot, twirling his hat in his knotted, disgusting hands, laughing stupidly, with something of his mother's laugh in the corner of his mouth and his eyes. The landlord, appearing on the scene, went to look for the birth certificate of this wretched being. He was born eight months and twenty-six days after my stay at pont Labe, for I recollect perfectly that we reached Lorient on the 15th of August. The certificate contained this description, father unknown. The mother called herself Jeanne Caradec. Then my heart began to beat rapidly. I could not utter a word, for I felt as if I were choking. I looked at this animal, whose long yellow hair reminded me of a straw heap, and the beggar, embarrassed by my gaze, stopped laughing turned his head aside, and wanted to get away. All day long I wandered beside the little river, giving way to painful reflections. But what was the use of reflection? I could be sure of nothing. For hours and hours I weighed all the pros and cons in favor of or against the probability of my being the father, growing nervous over inexplicable suppositions, only to return incessantly to the same horrible uncertainty, then to the still more atrocious conviction that this man was my son. I could eat no dinner and went to my room. I lay awake for a long time, and when I finally fell asleep I was haunted by horrible visions. I saw this laborer laughing in my face and calling me Papa. Then he changed into a dog and bit the calves of my legs, and no matter how fast I ran, he still followed me, and instead of barking, talked and reviled me. Then he appeared before my colleagues at the academy, who had assembled to decide whether I was really his father, and one of them cried out, There can be no doubt about it. See how he resembles him. And indeed I could see that this monster looked like me and I awoke with this idea fixed in my mind, and with an insane desire to see the man again, and assure myself whether or not we had similar features. I joined him as he was going to Mass, it was Sunday, and I gave him five francs, and I gazed at him anxiously. He began to laugh in an idiotic manner, took the money, and then, embarrassed afresh at my gaze, he ran off, after stammering an almost inarticulate word, 
that no doubt meant thank you. My day passed in the same distress of mind as on the previous night. I sent for the landlord, and, with the greatest caution, skill, and tact, I told him that I was interested in this poor creature, so abandoned by everyone and deprived of everything, and I wished to do something for him. But the man replied, "'Oh, do not think of it, monsieur. He is of no account. You will only cause yourself annoyance. I employ him to clean out the stable, and that is all he can do. I give him his board and let him sleep with the horses. He needs nothing more. If you have an old pair of trousers, you might give them to him, but they will be rags in a week.' I did not insist, intending to think it over. The poor wretch came home that evening frightfully drunk, came near setting fire to the house, killed a horse by hitting it with a pickaxe, and ended up lying down to sleep in the mud in the midst of the pouring rain, thanks to my donation. They begged me next day not to give him any more money. Brandy drove him crazy, and as soon as he had two sous in his pocket, he would spend it on drink. The landlord added, giving him money is like trying to kill him. The man had never, never in his life had more than a few centimes thrown to him by travelers, and he knew of no destination for this metal but the wine shop. I spent several hours in my room with an open book before me, which I pretended to read, but in reality looking at this animal, my son, my son, trying to discover if he looked anything like me. After careful scrutiny, I seemed to recognize a similarity in the lines of the forehead and the root of the nose, and I was soon convinced that there was a resemblance, concealed by the difference in garb and the man's hideous head of hair. I could not stay here any longer without arousing suspicion, and I went away, my heart crushed, leaving with the innkeeper some money to soften the existence of his servant. For six years now I have lived with this idea in my mind, this horrible uncertainty, this abominable suspicion, and each year an irresistible force takes me back to Pont Lob. Every year I condemn myself to the torture of seeing this animal raking the manure, imagining that he resembles me, and endeavoring, always vainly, to render him some assistance. And each year I return more uncertain, more tormented, more worried. I have tried to have him taught, but he is a hopeless idiot. I tried to make his life less hard. He is an irreclaimable drunkard, and spends and drink all the money one gives him, and knows enough to sell his new clothes in order to get brandy. I have tried to awaken his master's sympathy so he should look after him, offering to pay him for doing so. The innkeeper, finally surprised, said very wisely, "'All that you do for him, monsieur, will only help to destroy him. He must be kept like a prisoner. As soon as he has any spare time or any comfort, he becomes wicked. If you wish to do good, there is no lack of abandoned children, but select one who will appreciate your attention.' What could I say? If I allowed the slightest suspicion of the doubts that tortured me to escape, this idiot would assuredly become cunning in order to blackmail me, to compromise me and ruin me. He would call out Papa as in my dream. And I said to myself that I had killed the mother and lost this atrophied creature, this larva of the stable, born and raised amid the manure, this man who, if brought up like others, would have been like others. And you cannot imagine what a strange, embarrassed, and intolerable feeling comes over me when he stands before me, and I reflect that he came from myself, that he belongs to me through the intimate bond that links father and son, that, thanks to the terrible law of heredity, he is my own self in a thousand ways, in his blood and his flesh, and that he even has the same germs of disease, the same leaven of emotions. I have an incessant, restless, distressing longing to see him, and the sight of him causes me intense suffering, as I look down from my window and watch him for hours, removing and carting horse manure, saying to myself, that is my son, and sometimes I feel an irresistible longing to embrace him. I have never even touched his dirty hand. The academician was silent. His companion, a tactful man, murmured, Yes, indeed, we ought to take closer interest in children who have no father. A gust of wind passing through the trees shook its yellow clusters, enveloping in a fragrant and delicate mist the two old men, who inhaled in the fragrance with deep breaths. The senator added, It is good to be twenty-five and even to have children like that. 
End of section 136. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.